about the one area that I think the brain can really instruct their whole body is in the reaction and in takeoff time. And that is very much a sensory or central nervous system impact. And so one to 2%, hundreds of seconds is the difference between a winner and a loser in that case. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. I graduated from Indiana University in May of 2015 after having studied neuroscience and dance while I was in school. I can tell you from firsthand experience that no one would have that combination of majors that had a really clear understanding of what their path was going to be moving forward. Needless to say, I had no idea what I wanted to quote unquote do and no real vision for myself. I was interested in a thousand different things and in school, I constantly felt like I could never commit to just one of them. Earlier that year, Eric had moved to Toronto because he had just gotten traded to TFC. I always knew that when I graduated from school that I would come to live with Eric. We had been in a long distance relationship for two and a half years, and we were both looking forward to that date so much for when we would finally be able to live together. But I moved to Toronto without knowing anyone, without having ever been to Canada, without a job. I did have a temporary work permit that I got because of a program that I had applied to that allowed me to get basically a a postgraduate student visa. But I came to Toronto really directionless, and as I was looking for a job, Eric told me that there was a coach for his team who worked on things that seemed like they were pretty close to neuroscience. I thought, first of all, that that was pretty revolutionary, that Toronto FC had someone on staff who was working on, well, what I didn't know what yet, but um, things at least somewhat related to the mind and neuroscience and the brain. I decided to reach out and just try to make that connection. Luckily for me, he was looking for someone to hire. He needed more help in the department. At the time, the department was called the Department of Cognitive Development. So I came and helped out Michael Rabaska with some of the projects that he was working on. During my time there, the department was renamed the Department of High Performance, and we worked closely with the sports science department to try to find ways to maximize the athlete's potential on the field. I loved working with Michael. The cool thing about joining what was a relatively new department was Even though I had just gotten the job, I had a lot of ownership over what I wanted to dive into and I could get curious about a certain subject and then really delve in, look at the data, analyze it and decide if I could come up with a program that would train the athletes in a certain area and would hopefully translate to better performance on the field. In my time there, I dove into many of the topics that I believe contribute very closely to high performance, including sleep and meditation and mindfulness, as well as attention and awareness. This was really my first chance to 
learn about these topics and many of them I've continued to learn about up to this point and I use all of them in my current job as I work with clients and try to help them make important changes in their lives. So I feel like I owe a lot to Toronto FC and to Michael for giving me the opportunity to work with the team. Michael alludes to this in the podcast, but we also got the opportunity to work with University of Toronto occupational therapy students a couple of times a year. So during those times, all of a sudden, my team would double or triple in size, and we had the chance to complete a really fun project together. And again, the scopes of those projects had a pretty big range, but that's what made them so fun. I always love my conversations with Michael. I feel like we are kind of on the same wavelength when it comes to being really interested in things and we're really interested in how the brain works and how the mind works and then how that translates to human behavior and performance. So I was really excited to get him on the podcast because I think what he does and the way that he thinks about not only sport but really the world is fascinating and I think that you guys will love hearing from him. Michael Rabaska is currently the Director of High Performance for Toronto FC. He's also previously been the head coach for TFC2. Prior to joining Toronto FC, Michael was a highly successful academy coach with stints at multiple clubs. He's also worked with U.S. Soccer as a scout and the NSCAA as a consultant to their club standard project. His focus at TFC is on cognitive and neurodevelopment in athletes, which combines his work experience as an occupational therapist as well as his past in soccer. It was really cool to work with Michael because his role is really the first of its kind in North America, and you'll hear exactly why that is from him in this episode. All right, everybody, without further ado, here is my conversation with Michael Rabaska. Hi, Michael. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. I'm excited to chat with you. Thanks for having me. It's always nice to with a familiar face. Yeah, agreed. This is a very weird time. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious just to start out, how do you feel about sports leagues being suspended right now and specifically the MLS? Well, you know, there's a couple of ways to answer that. Of course, from a professional and soccer standpoint, you know, I think we're in our 25th anniversary of the league right now. So from the standpoint of momentum, uh, the rise of the sport, both in popularity, in individual fan bases, all of that just seems like momentum killer. Um, and is hard, is, is difficult. Of course, uh, on a personal standpoint, you know, not being able to go into a job I love and something, seeing the guys and doing all that from a personal standpoint, all that, all that is difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. The other way to answer it is, you know, sport is largely a distraction and sometimes a good distraction, you know, in a way that uh, maybe we have missed the point in uh, how we go about our lives and, and what we do and we can reflect and really look back. It's not unprecedented that leagues have had to stop for periods of time. You know, I, I think in the U.S., the closest we've ever come to this would have been um, in the summer of 94. Uh, when baseball was on a strike, self-inflicted, mm-hmm. and there were no sport. Uh, hockey and baseball and football weren't in season. There was no league for us in terms of soccer. There was the World Cup in 94, which was treated more like a, an Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, so it came and went. And really, from a U.S. perspective, there was more uh, emphasis on you know the millionaires and 
what was going on in baseball. So I don't think quite like what we're going through now. Mm-hmm. Um, so my perspective is it's happened and now um, what we do with ourselves each and every day is truly important. And I think it's a good time for us to reflect on what we miss, but more importantly, why we miss that. And maybe it gives us a chance to put things in the, in the right place. Yeah, I love that perspective. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of people are obviously in very different situations right now than they're used to, and people are transitioning to what it looks like to work from home. But in team sport, it's really challenging to maintain any sort of feeling of connection with the people that you're used to seeing every single day. So I think this is a very weird time for the team, for sure. It's also an interesting point that when sports are taken away, it allows us to think about what role they really play in our lives. We can't take them for granted because now we know we're getting a chance to see what our lives look like without sport. And I think it's sort of an interesting little experiment that's going on. I agree with you. It is quite different also in the sense that not only has sport been taken away from us, but we're also having to now, we, we can't do anything. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's not like baseball was taken away or soccer was taken away, but you still get to go to the park or enjoy uh, the 4th of July celebration. You you could then spend more time with your extended family, but at their house. Whatever it might be, there are different ways to enjoy your day or to reflect in different ways. But now uh, I think your point about uh, not being able to see each other and not being with the team is, it's remarkable. The stories you hear, I don't know if I'm fortunate or unfortunate and that I have older children. And so they're not here with me. They're adults going to college. Right. And so that's the phase of life I find myself in, but all of these players now who are home with their children for long periods of time, and we hear this throughout North America right now is um, work from home. Can't work from home. I've got to teach from home. I've got to, be, I've got to entertain. I've got to do things and a skill set I've never ever had before. Try and fit on that a player who's trying to, you know, stay fit and find different ways to, to do that. It's really interesting and it'd be really interesting to see what people learn from this, not just have a sense or a feeling of how difficult it was. For sure. Eric and I were talking about that, about how what phase of life you're in affects how this whole experience is so much. So we don't have kids. We're in a home. Like we're not even holed up in a condo downtown anymore. We're just hanging out with our dog. Like really, we're in a great position for this. But, you know, imagine if this had happened to us in high school, for example, and we had been holed up with our whole family, you know, for an unlimited amount of time. That would have been way different. Or if we did have kids, it would be way different. So, yeah, so interesting to think about everyone it just depends so much what phase of life you're in as to what this situation really looks like for you it's it's amazing isn't it in that you look on the internet and you see a wonderful video of a family uh, recreating a song and dancing and, and going through this and and you, you can imagine that there was a a whole build-up practice and rehearsal and multiple takes and maybe from some frustration along the way of doing all that that's great. We just saw a five-minute video. I want to see what's going on the other uh, <laughs> 23 hours and 55 minutes of the day uh, because my sense is that it's difficult. And um, some friends with kids have reached out of, what would you suggest? What do you do? And I'm like, well, routine and schedule. And 
there's only so much routine and schedule. <laughs> there's 24 hours in the day and you got to wake up again and do it all over again. I, I, I sympathize and, uh, you know, I, I think it's really interesting to see how people, uh, again, come out with what they learned and not just how they felt about the entire experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It'll be interesting to see everyone's takeaways when this is all over. We're seeing it more and more in different versions, but I want to know why growing numbers of professional sports teams have high performance departments or departments similar to that. Um, and what role you think they play for a team? I think you're right. I think they're, well, I, what I think is there's more emphasis put into the mind and into the approach or the mentality of the game. Mm-hmm. I still think there's a, you and I worked on this quite a bit in the differentiation between a sports science department and a high performance department. Yeah, for I sure. I think Toronto FC is a little bit ahead of the curve in that from that standpoint, we very much have clearly delineated uh, that there are two things going on. Um, Can you explain for us how those two things are different? Sports science versus high performance? Depending on who you're talking to, I think it's all relative in terms. Now, remember, I only t- we only took on high performance because within the culture, within Toronto FC, there was a desire to have a more, a broader term. The original department name was cognitive development. Mm-hmm. Since moving back from head coach of TFC2 to uh, this current position, I've chosen to title myself director of cognitive development again. Oh, you did? Yeah. I missed that update. Okay. Nice. I don't know if that's necessarily an organizational thing, but you'll see when <laughs> in my signatures, um, it'll say director of cognitive development and uh, not high performance. I, okay. I still think probably even in major league soccer and throughout the world, there is still a um, high performance department and we do a little bit of um, mental or mindset work. When I, when I say mindset, I'm not talking about Carol Dweck. I'm talking about mentality, if you will. By and large, I still feel like the strength and conditioning, the body is still their primary focus and still what they really want to focus on. They might throw in the the sports psychology that might be included, some constructs in there. But in terms of really focusing on it and really saying we value this as a separate entity that is as important and we will work on these skills as much as we will work in the actual physical gymnasium, in the actual, on the actual physical field, I don't know that everyone has still hit their stride. You know, for instance, I'll give you a for instance in that I think Sporting KC has done tremendous work um, in their high performance department. I don't know the extent to which they are involved in the cognitive field, but I know they spend a lot of time working on the central nervous system in terms of working on vision Mm-hmm. and uh, addressing that area of it. I, I think you know this about me in, in, in terms of your frame of reference is super important. When your frame of reference, if it's from strength and conditioning, and we're going to make this area also a little bit, that's far different than saying we're going to work on the central nervous system. Or we're going to work on your brain. Mm-hmm. And I think at the professional level, those distinctions and re- really being clear about that is um, super important. Why should athletes be working on their brain? Well, because they'll get paid more. <laughs> okay, and what are all the steps along the way that lead to that? You just jump 20 steps ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're talking about the small margins of the game, if we're just talking about small margins, 
athletes outside of the performance enhancing things that you can do. A baseball player can enhance himself by going and getting laser surgery. And then there's the artificial means of doing things. So you can get bigger, stronger, faster, but a certain, there's a range, a certain point in the range of your physical capacity and you will hit that range. People have been, and athletes have been working in the area of your body forever. And so working on your brain is that one area that uh, while we pay some attention to it, people have actually have, you know, put more attention into their brain, but I don't know that it's really as pinpoint as it could be. Mm-hmm. And when you are performing at the highest level, a 2% difference can be the difference between winning or losing or getting your, your battle. It's in the most basic form, a sprinter is, I don't know what a sprinter will run in a hundred yards or a hundred meters, whatever it will be, but they all hit it in a certain time frame. and the hundreds of seconds is their physical capacity. Well, the one area that I think the brain can really instruct their whole body is in the reaction and in takeoff time. And that is very much a sensory or central nervous system impact. And so one to 2%, hundreds of seconds is the difference between a winner and a loser in that case. The focus and concentration over the 10 seconds sure plays into it. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really what we're talking about. And it's in its most simplistic sense. Heard a great story the other day of Ichiro, the baseball player. He decided to go from a right-handed hitting player to a left-handed hitting player because it put him two feet closer to the base. And in his calculation, that two feet made a difference in how often he can get on base. And it makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. He looked at it in a way that was unique, just that he was simply closer. Mm -hmm. And that made a difference in... um, in his game. I think that's, uh, that's pretty smart. It's pretty intelligent. Yeah, that's fascinating. When you're at the highest level of sport, it's the tiniest things that make a huge difference, right? It's that split second you're talking about. It's inches that determine whether the ball's going in or out of the goal. It's inches that determine whether your foot's in front of the ball or not. So all of these decisions that happen in split seconds of time during the game, if you're able to train those and make your reaction time faster and make your awareness and attention that much better, it translates into big differences in the game. No question. In 2016, the save, the Stefan Fry save over Josie Altador. I can't stand when people say that that's lucky it strips everything of Stefan Fry's work and what he has done in time. And it also takes away from what Josie has done to even Justin Morrow and the cross. And it, it takes away a lot of stuff, but that is exactly the margin you are talking about. That was a very difficult physical save to make uh, so much so that something uh, he read something, there was something he interpreted this is no knock on Josie, but that was different than what Josie read to be able to even get his, his head on the ball to even get it that close. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the margin that I think you're talking about. And I don't know that we can ask Justin to run any faster. I don't know that we could ask Josie to jump any higher or Stefan to jump any higher. Uh, mm-hmm. Somewhere in those three is a margin for making the save versus scoring the goal. And that, that is as close of a play that I can come in that I've been part of anyway. Yeah, that I think recognizes this difference of one to two percent, and on that day, Stefan seemed to have that one to two percent. And I'm not saying it's it's necessarily because of a, a component that he trained cognitively. 
I'm saying that that's something that perhaps we can change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an awesome example. A lot of the work that you're doing is there isn't exactly a template for you to follow of other people that have done this before you, right? A lot of it's very trailblazing and it's kind of just, you have to be inspired to go with something, to dive into a project and see what happens. What are some of the questions that you're diving into right now and things that you're trying to answer? I wish I had a really good answer for you on this, but (laughs) a lot of what I am doing now is really trying to shore up uh, what we've done in the past to take it out of the theoretical and really, you know, say, got to be doing this on a day in day out basis. I'm naturally curious. We mentioned in the pre-conversation that I'm doing a study on Martin Luther right now. And the reason why I'm doing a study on Martin Luther is I find the German mentality to be very intriguing. Luther is an important part of their history in terms of uh, the Reformation and how all that works. So I'm very curious about how, how that mentality might be forged or how it was forged where they are now. Coincidentally, it's if you're just watching the COVID experience and you're watching Germany and how they're relating to it, Right now, they're setting dates of May to bring their sport back to fruition. And it's almost like plausible. Like you almost hear Germans say, May, we'll have this ready to go. And you almost believe it right off the bat. And there's a reason for that. And that's what I want to understand. So I think naturally, I'm a little bit curious about the world. And it was wonderful working with you because there was always this sense of, oh, that's curious. That's subjective. Is there some sort of objective stuff that we can get to make this feel right, to make this not just feel right, but to actually be able to say we can stand behind this and we can uh, do it. I think the stuff Mm -hmm. you did on sleep was magnificent and remarkable. So much so that this little tie down has allowed us to get back with the University of Toronto and we're going to have them review all of your work and uh, update it. I mean, the, the stuff we found out about the league and what sleep and the time zone changes all could mean to winning and losing. I want to review that and see where we are cool. into the future. Uh, and another one for me, and just being a person of one in the department, not having enough time, but we'll be able to do this now is just looking at grit and resilience. Now, you know how I feel about psychology and sports psychology, but I also believe strongly in, in some of the constructs of Carol Dweck's work with mindset. I think we'll be getting to that in a little bit, mm-hmm. but Uh, This idea of grit and resilience, the measurability of some of these, and then being able to uncover it in the form of what does that look like when you interview someone? What does that look like as you're working with someone? Can it be trained? Can we somehow forge some of these things are are really interesting things to me that seem to make sense, just the subjective feel to it. Mm -hmm. It's good. It's a matter of time and being able to try and uh, work those things out. Yeah, of course. That was the part that I always loved the most is we got curious about something and there was a subjective gut feeling that we had about something like this matters, this will make a difference. And then figuring out how do we translate this to something that could be implemented, whether we actually had the time and the capacity to implement it or not, like that, that was the exciting part to me. Like now, how do we present this to a way that a team could actually use and implement in a program? Yeah. yeah, and that's obviously the hardest the hardest leap to make, but to me, that was the exciting stuff, for sure. Yeah, it still is. University of Toronto, with the COVID experience and their occupational therapy department, all these um, non-traditional placements, um, I think they call them something different here in Canada. But emerging? Emerging. Yeah. Emerging placements, yes. Your mind is always better. <laughs> um, uh, they had a bunch of, a rash of cancellations. 
and I wasn't going to do it this year. I, last couple of rotations have been difficult in the sense like I just didn't feel like I was giving the students enough time. Well, we had students when we were traveling to Mexico during the CONCACAF time and I'm doing video conferences with them or phone calls with them. And I, I just felt a little guilty that I wasn't able to give them as much time as I think they deserve. You know, two weeks on the road and not really seeing students, but communicating with them. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, the point is I did not, was not going to take the students on, but now I find myself with uh, seven students and we're going to do all of this uh, remotely. Every time I get the University of Toronto students, they're fantastic. And so I'm looking forward to these. Uh, it'll be different. I'm not used to the Zooming. <laughs> You're going to get used to it. We're all going to get used to it. Yeah, we have no choice. Be a new thing at the end of this, yeah. Yeah. Since we went there, let's dive right into it. Let's talk a little bit more about Carol Dweck's work, which I know that is a, a side of the sports psychology that you can get on board with and that I agree. I do love that there are ways to pull data from it, right? Like it doesn't feel so wishy-washy and so subjective that um, you can't pull some data out of it as to kind of getting at on paper whether someone has a fixed or a growth mindset. First, can you just briefly explain what the difference is between a growth and a fixed mindset and then we'll dive into it a little bit. Quickest way to say it is growth. If you're of the growth mindset, you believe that uh, with enough time and resources, you'll always be able to accomplish something. I think that's the scary part and the most misunderstood part. Uh, people focus on the outcome. In other words, it's not saying you could be president of the United States, but it is saying that with enough time and enough resources, um, you could be a good leader. You could have the knowledge to do trade negotiations. You could have what it takes to be able to do that. Now, then you hit the president part, which is you know, there's a whole bunch of things in voting and all that kind of stuff. Growth says with enough time and resources, you will be able to learn astrophysics. You can, you can do it. It might take you 50 years to learn the nuances of those topics, but with enough time and resources, resources being money to pay for tutors, the right instructors, the right mentors, all of those uh, types of things. You have enough time and resources to, to grow and, and to learn those things. Fix would be like, I don't care how much time I have. I'm never going to master uh, basic al algebra. It's different than saying it's going to take me too long. So I choose not to do it. In other words, you might believe, yeah, in 10 years, I can learn basic algebra. I just don't want to do that. That's not being fixed. That's just recognizing that you have no interest in the topic. When it comes to topics, I think that's some of the confusion. You'll ask a question to someone and they'll give you a response that sounds awfully fixed, but what they're really re relating to is the, uh, is the interest in the subject and the topic and not, near, not necessarily their belief in themselves um, that with enough time and resources, they can get there. And I think those distinctions and being able to get down to those facts, I think are, are really important. So knowing that, why does it hold an athlete back if they have a fixed mindset? It's very, very, very rare that I see a really at the professional level. I mean, to, to get where they are, they have to have a lot of belief and understanding that they can get there. Have you ever seen the athlete or the superstar with this massive level of talent that's very afraid of failure because yeah. they think that that is a reflection of their fixed level of talent? Mm. 
none, none is really coming to mind. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of self-sabotage uh, because of the stress or because of the anxiety associated with performance or pressure or not wanting to let people down. I've seen those. I think, again, mm-hmm. they were able to achieve a certain amount of success because in their belief of getting better, falling back to the academy players and the developing players, I do see a lot of some fixed mindset where you'll hear it mostly pointed at another player. Well, he can't do that just because he's, you know, he's too slow and because he's too slow, he'll never be able to, to do that type of thing. And when you point out this professional player who is the slowest guy on earth or, you know, next thing, then, then they start to see that, oh, maybe there's a different way to overcome that. Yeah. The reason I asked those questions is I think I'm thinking back to when I was younger, when I had a much more fixed mindset and I had this definition of being smart and I just believed that that was a certain innate level of smarts that I had. And anything that I was afraid that I would fail at, I actually ran the other way from because if I failed at it, it meant I wasn't as smart as everyone thought I was, or I wasn't upholding this fixed thing, right? And so, and I didn't think that I could actually get better. I didn't lean into the challenges and the things that I might potentially not do well at knowing that that's good for me. And the process of failing is in turn going to make me better. Like that vision wasn't there at all. So I think that's where I'm, what I'm thinking about as I ask those questions and just trying to think if it translates to athletes on the field. Yeah, I think it's hard to see where that fixed mentality of I can only be this good where the idea of fix, I can only be this good versus fear of failure. So in other words, if someone had come up to you and said, no, that doesn't have to be your top end. You, you can do this versus when I heard you explaining about the test, there was a, maybe a tinge of fear to even approach that breakthrough. I'm not 100% certain I would call that a fixed mentality as much as a fear of failure. And maybe those two things are related, but not exactly the same. It'd be interesting to go through the research as you and I did. Uh, I think she has like 160 papers. <laughs> and it would be interesting to go through to see where, that, where those two collide, if you will. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's talk about cognitive skills. That's very broad, but do you believe that it's possible to train cognitive skills independent of physical movement and have it translate to better performance on the field? Well, my background as an occupational therapist and working with brain injury would have to say yes, because we, we train cognitive skills that we hope will translate into life. And I think if you're, if you're training a skill like focus, attention, and concentration, you hope that uh, a player now in the 85th minute and the work they've done on focus, attention, and concentration pays off to hit to 90 minutes plus. And that the focus, attention, and concentration you're working on now is not just an endurance thing, but is a detail thing. And so even though their uh, heart rate and their adrenaline and all of those things that would want to close them off would like to the wonderful work you did on fight flight freeze responses you would hope that they learn through their cognitive training and attention uh, focus concentration is able to broaden their horizon and pay attention to the details in that moment of course experience pays 
you know, pays off quite a bit. So the more times you're able to play in those high stake games or those games where these things come into play are very important. But yeah, I, th- I think I think it can be trained to make a difference. One way that you can train that focus and attention and concentration is through meditation, which is interestingly something that I've been leaning into a lot lately in this whole COVID situation, because I do find it very grounding in a time where we were just talking about this earlier, but where like the days just seem to like mold into one and time flies by and there aren't very many like pauses to recenter and, and gain some awareness over what's going on in my own mind. But why do you believe in meditation and how do you use it in a way that benefits the way that athletes play? We still focus heavily on um, offering meditation in a way that makes sense for the athlete. As I'm saying that, what I mean is if you want it, for performance, I think that mindfulness is a good way to go. Mm-hmm. If you want it to center yourself, there, there's other meditative techniques like transcendental meditation that could make more sense for you. There's meditation in the sense of relaxation, which, you know, as you know, was a big struggle for us. When you mentioned meditation, people are talking, oh, you're going to, you know, you're going to make me relax and I need to be alert and I need to be an athlete. I don't need to be sleeping. I need to be aroused. So there is a meditation that can get you into a relaxed state because some people want to you know, use it before bed because they, they want to uh, let go of their day and they want to get to sleep. So th- there's still a lot of ways to meditate and use it in a way that makes sense for you as an athlete. Mm-hmm. And I think that for us is our greatest strength is that we do say this needs to be right for you in whatever form you take where I think we have a long way to go inside our department is I'm pretty much focused on mindfulness and in the sense of offering it to the players. And then outside of that, it becomes a, um, an education or resource, um, trying to get them to the right people, which always makes me feel uncomfortable because I want to know the people that, you know, I'm referring to, and I I don't always know that. And so there's a, a lot more on my end right now of let's explore it together. If you'd like to, we can do those type of things. Mm -hmm. I think one of my biggest takeaways from the mindfulness and meditation program that we implemented was just that it's not something that everyone is going to use for the same things. It's not something that everyone's going to approach the same way and providing the education and then having people take the concepts and integrate it into their process and what they need, however they need to do it is the best way, right? It's not something you can force down someone's throat. Like they have to take what they want from it and integrate it in a way that actually benefits them. That's kind of how it has to be. So I definitely remember that clearly that everyone just approached it very differently. For a lot of things in life, right? Like you can't force things on on people. I will say on your behalf, but also the reason why we've also settled on mindfulness. And I, I, you've heard me say a couple of times as a department of one, and I'm not weaving a, a sad story here. It just is a matter of the resources that we have. And mindfulness covers a lot of bases for us in terms of learning and acquiring skill. Mindfulness really hits a lot of nice parts, especially for the academy players. You know, the idea of practicing without speaking really starts tuning players into uh, other sounds that they now hear that they've not heard before. The idea of focusing on a body part while they're performing a, a technique. I feel like the mindfulness part enhances their learning from the pro all the way down, you know, yeah. 
that is really helpful for us. So from that standpoint, that's why we've settled on mindfulness as something that we can feel confident and comfortable instructing on and, um, and staying there. There's the implementation piece that's so critical. It's like the concepts are lovely and you can get curious about all the things and all the topics and all the details. But then at the end of the day, what part is actually going to integrate into their training? And that's a smooth way to do it. What do you believe has been your biggest impact on TFC as an organization? I don't have an answer. I feel like the group of people that I am, that I work with, we're like a cell. And if you take out one part of the cell, it just doesn't perform as, as well. That's where I feel uh, we are. There really isn't any one thing I could say, Hey, look at that. Put that on a, pedestal or even say, you know, it's made that big a difference within the organization. There's been a lot of proud moments and especially, you know, when working with you and when you were with us in the department and then anytime the University of Toronto students have been around, that's been a wonderful, wonderful learning time and the projects that Mm -hmm. come out with it. Can I share what I think has been your biggest impact on the organization? <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can share a story if you'd like. I don't know if I would agree or disagree, but go ahead. Okay, well, my sense is that the presence of the departments in the organization, it gives people a reason to explore more and ask why. And it gives people a place to go and a space for diving deeper into what's going on. So I'm thinking of it sort of in a reflective way, but if we look back on a certain season and we think, okay, let's look at what happened. And this relates to the sleep work that we were doing too, right? And looking at the time zones and what was going on. Like there's a place to go and and a space to ask the questions of why and search for a greater sense of what's really going on here instead of just kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying, I don't know why it happened or why it didn't. Let's just keep moving ahead. There's a sense of always wanting more and always wanting to know the reasons why. So I would say one of the words we fall on quite often, I think you enjoy this word, but the the word we use often is purpose um, Mm -hmm. and to be purposeful. So in success and failure, you either want to replicate some things and you, you know, you want to take a close reflection. I, I think that has been a hallmark from the time that you have been here. Uh, were with us until even, you know, today, um, this preseason, one of the words we use with the team in our goal setting presentation was purposeful. It is my favorite word. If I could put up a slogan in TFC's walls, it would be, um, you know, a culture of purpose, a culture of being purposeful. This idea of a culture of excellence has always gnawed at me in the Mm -hmm. sense of what is that? What does that mean to who? You could poke holes in purposefulness, I'm sure, as well. But it does get exactly to what I think you just articulated so well was let's explore it. Let's look at it. Not to overanalyze it, not to not to drag us down. And this is the piece I think about, you know, that I said earlier about a cell and working within the team. We will explore those things. We do want to understand it and not just write it off as because we were lucky or because, you know, well, that was last year and, you know, yeah. we're not find that again. I think all of it has a piece and an important piece and it's part of our evolution as an organization. And um, if I could, I would put that up on a wall somewhere um, where we uh, forged a, a culture of purpose. I love that. Okay. Many of the listeners of the podcast are not professional athletes. They're just everyday people 
but many of them are interested in performing better in their everyday lives. So what things would you suggest that they can do to, to perform more optimally in their life? Sleep. <laughs> yes, I love that answer. Great. <laughs> I mean, um, for an athlete all the way down, you can't sleep enough. For me, everyone is going to, I'm not going to get into the discussion of how much, how often, when, naps versus no naps. If you feel tired, you know, give yourself permission to take a nap and to go mm -hmm. to sleep. Everything from the restorative functions to the body and the restorative functions to the brain, it just is that one thing that is a, is a great equalizer uh, mm -hmm. and a great restorative touch for all of us. And I think in this crazy, productive-driven world, we think that sleeping is wasting our time and we're not getting enough in. I say I wake up at 5 a.m., but if, if I'm not feeling it, I'll sleep until 7 and 7.15 and 7.30 until my eyes are ready to wake. And there's a reason for that. And it's really getting over that mentality of it's okay. You know, sometimes you have to get up and you have to go to work and you have to get it done. But the mental note for me is you're not ready, really ready to get up. And so find a time to take, I'll find a time to take a nap. And then mm -hmm. there's a reason why people love naps because they feel so good. Yeah. <laughs> so it's okay to do that it is the one thing I think meditation is, you know, up there. Mm -hmm. I think it should be explored to, for everyone and how it can help them. And the last thing I would say that I do on a, on a fairly regular basis that I, in the last two years, that feels really good to me is, is um, fasting, but I think fasting and meditation are more of an individual uh, thing. If I could get everyone to just kind of be, be okay with sleeping, that would be great. I'm a big sleep fan too. You know that. Do you have any, I know you're a big reader. Do you have any favorite sleep books that you've read? Why We Sleep by uh, Matthew Walker. Amazing. And then there's a little compendium, I think a smaller version, like a Cliff Notes version mm -hmm. that is a good place to start. And then I think that uh, you can really go a little deeper if you'd like after that. Cool. I didn't know that they had, that he had that uh, shorter version. That's awesome. That's my favorite one also. I'm, I'm not going to commit to the shorter version. I might be uh. it with someone else, but I, I do believe, okay. he, I believe there is that. I think he has. Yeah. Awesome. That's all the questions I have for you. Thanks for chatting. This has been fun. It's always fun. If people are interested in learning more about you, is there a place that they can go to get more information? You and what the department does? No. There isn't really a website, huh? It, Toronto FC, there might be a little link for the department. I don't think there is, though, to be honest with you. You know, I have a Twitter account, but it's private. I think I follow like 70 people and like 30 follow me. So. Okay. <laughs> and I have a Facebook, but that's so that I can stay connected with uh, friends and family throughout the States. So. Yeah. Okay. So we need to work on getting the department a website. You need to put up all the good stuff that you're doing. All the good stuff, yeah. All the good stuff. Well, thanks for chatting. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to How Do You Feel? If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Rate and review the podcast. Those ratings and reviews really do go a long way. I appreciate them all so much. Better yet, share the podcast with a friend or family member that you think would benefit from the messages that we talk about on How Do You Feel? All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope everyone has a great week. And as always, remember, get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.